I heard the most beautiful sentiment last week uh, spoken by one of our board members at the board meeting uh, in the opening go-around. She teaches middle school in a school in Anacostia where her days are anything but easy, where so often the ordinary decency and common courtesy are in desperately short supply and where kindness and simple appreciation must be mustered, practiced, learned and taught and retaught every single day. She commented on how often she feels dismayed to find and hear negative comments and thoughtless words, mean and demeaning remarks among the students um, and also directed at them from their parents and teachers. And she talked about how she has become dedicated to noticing any time one of her students is being helpful or kind or acts with responsibility, gets their homework in on time. And so she's created a shout-out board in the classroom so that everyone she and her students alike can catch someone doing good. I know Amanda's interested in doing that in our office. <laughs> she was inspired. She commented on what a difference it has made, how that kind of appreciation has become contagious. The American poet and essayist Kenneth Rexroth said, the mature person lives quietly, does good privately, assumes personal responsibility for her actions, treats others with friendliness and courtesy, finds mischief boring, and keeps out of it. And then he went on to say, and without this hidden conspiracy of goodwill, society would not endure one hour. This board member is clearly interested in the hidden conspiracy of goodwill and wants to coax that conspiracy out of hiding now and then just to check its pulse, its viability. So I thought about how difficult it has become for so many of our children now to even go to school with this epidemic we're hearing about of bullying and violence and fear that they face every day when they walk in and how in the ordinary journey down the hallway of a public school, just one word, one greeting, one glance of recognition or disdain can offer wings to a child or offer something else all that they will remember of that day, that week, that period in their life, that childhood. And then what of all of us in the hallways we walk down every day, in our home, in our office, in the stores and in the bank and our religious community, everywhere? What readies us to be open enough, attentive enough, awake enough and courageous enough just simply to say and mean good morning.
What you may be asking is our moral code, our moral law here. And I don't mean our bylaws or the American Ethical Union's bylaws or the Unitarian Universalist's wonderful seven principles. I mean, what is each of us faithful to? What are we trying to be faithful to? When we say that we're all about creating an ethical culture, to whom or what are we accountable? If, for example, we did have a list of commandments, a list of rules to guide our lives, what would they be? Someone yesterday in the uh, Path to Membership orientation asked, where in the absence of God do ethics come from? And that's a really um, important question. Where do the laws of life come from, these lists that we individually generate and clip and save and memorize commandments on tablets and also on scraps of paper tucked into our back pockets? What are the rules that you tend to play by in the game of life, and how did you come by them? Which ones do you carefully pass on to your children or try to, as if they were universal principles, precious treasures, the family inheritance, necessities, and which do you can tend to keep to yourself, your own private, quiet commandments? If someone asked you to state your principles, not your beliefs, your wild ideas about the world and life and death, but your own ethical rules of the road, those moral values that nowadays can either make or break an election, could you do it readily, easily? For ethical culturists, we do not believe that we derive our ethics from God. There's no creed we can recite, no commandments memorized and handed down. Nor can we passively wait for our ethics to just find their way to us, kind of mysteriously appear before us. Ethical culture holds that if I am to be a beloved person, I need to extend love to others. If I want to experience my own worthiness, then I need to treat others with worth. If I'm to feel hopeful, I need to support others to find their hope. These sound familiar, I hope, because these are the messages that we hear and sing every year at our winter festival. Some of us learn ethical behavior from our parents if we were lucky, if we have those kind of parents, and we have ears to listen, or we were listening, or from good teachers, or from close friends. Each of us keeps our own list, and it is tested in community. We find by time and trial and error, that's what we're all about here, honed against the list that others keep, against history, and against hope. But mostly, I think that our personal laws or commandments come from whatever personal suffering we've witnessed or known, what courage we've seen and known, whatever love we've known and given, and all the disappointments 
and foolishness, selfishness, and good and bad choices that we've made are part of it too because our ethics are a work in progress. We gather and sift them as we go along through life. The poet Charles Olson says, Whatever you have to say, leave the roots on. Let them dangle in the dirt just to make clear where they come from. Wherever your ethics come from, leave the roots on. It's easy sometimes to lose our way. I spent quite a bit of time this past summer in the months leading up to my older daughter Ariana's wedding with Ari and her now husband Chris and his family. They had lots of family gatherings. They were great fun. But what I noticed that he, is that his family had a ritual that they enacted every time they parted. Whenever Chris's mother or any of her five siblings got ready to say their goodbyes, then one of them would say, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. It's something that Chris's father apparently used to say, and I love that phrase. Remember who you are and where you came from. Because the spirit in which it was said meant, in my view, remember who you are. Don't lose track of it. Remember who you love. Remember what you stand for. When I was just out of high school, my mother um, married a wonderful man. His name was Bob Hammer from Idaho. Some of you knew him, and they were married for 30 years. He was a lovely man, and though I never really lived with uh, he and my mother after I went to college, he and Jean and my girls and I were very, very close. He was a humble, gentle man, a deeply ethical man, whose ethics were ratified in all of his commitments, his commitments at work and with the people he loved and the causes that he cherished. He was a very proud union organizer and a roofer by trade. And the story that was told to me by my mother was that he learned at one, point, at one point that a number of his fellow workers, all good old Idaho boys, had been falsifying their hours over a number of weeks and then months and then years. And without any malice toward them or with any anger, he simply walked away from them on the day that he found out. Now, they were crazy about him. He was a lot of fun, a great guy. But because he wouldn't go along with them, Bob ate his lunch alone from that day forward for many years. Now, he was not saintly, but he was someone who was good for goodness' sake. He was a person who wore his virtues with nonchalant ease like comfortable clothes, worn soft and familiar with constant use. You probably know people like that. Bob's ethics gave him access to the only power any of us ever really hold, which is the power of our own integrity. And there's so much of that that goes on in this community. I know that you've seen it as often as I have in committee meetings, 
I've seen it when we've made very hard all-West decisions. We've come together and we've grappled through it all and come back and back over and over and over again, sometimes ad nauseum, but we hang in there. And I see it with you and your children and with others, people's children. I see people here who do not seem to know themselves to be unusually kind or gentle or brave, and yet who are, who unfailingly are. Now, there are advantages to traditional religions that provide their followers with rules and commandments and structures. There's a certain comfort in knowing that if I behave in a certain way and I follow the rules and do all the rituals, I can be assured of of reward in an afterlife. And there are challenges that go along with living without guidance or dogma. We have no formula to fall back on. We have to work out the roadmap for ourselves. The founding member of ethical culture, Dr. Felix Adler, felt that there is something innate in us that comprehends moral law. It's just a part of who we are, the natural structure of things. And we have a sense that by following these rules, these rules like be kind to others, respect the earth, don't waste water, Honor your mother and father and children. Tell the truth. Recycle. Pay your taxes. Care about people who need caring about. Then we stand a better chance of living a good life and making a positive contribution to the world. We feel that somehow innately. We know that it's in our bones and our DNA. But, he said, like players on a chessboard, following the rules really only means that we stay in the game, not necessarily that we win. Acting to help others, acting to do good, can help awaken that part of ourselves that innately comprehends moral law. So there is kind of a feedback loop, he thought. When you become more ethical, you become more dedicated to the idea of the potential for goodness in others and in yourself. And the more that you act on that intuition, there's, that there is potential for goodness in every person. No matter how deeply buried it may seem, the more ethical than you become. The good life, he might have said, is a choice we make to love what makes life good. And it seems on first blush so simple to implement. But what that actually means, and it's challenging, is to put aside pessimism and cynicism and despair and embrace instead the goodness of life. To love the best that the world has to offer and not not all that we can find that is wrong in it. What attracts people to the ethical society, I think, it seems, is our conscious decision that one that we have to actually make and remake over and over again to ally ourselves with what is good in life and to keep that goodness alive for those who follow us. To say what we know is so, to do what we know is right. The choice to put our faith in human goodness and to ally ourselves with it even when the slights the disappointments, even when our doubts hover over us, and they do that even here. 
and to extend that goodness to others are the most decisive moves we can make toward making our world a more humane and civil place. We live our values through the small and simple acts of goodness that keep our humanity on the side of all that makes us good. That's really why he started Ethical Culture, is to find those conditions that make goodness flourish. And I can think of no better way to be known by our friends or to be remembered when we're gone. Someone once said that the ethical life is like the baking of bread, the raising of wheat, or any other human labor. It demands solid, ancient, tested principles to which you are committed, to which you will be faithful, principles you've chosen over time to own and call your own. You bring them to bear in a world of uncertain and unpredictable circumstances under all kinds of conditions over which you have absolutely no control with no guarantee of success. But you bring them to bear, making order and art where maybe none was, holding as true to your own truth as you can. In looking through an old notebook of a class that I taught here many, many years ago, I don't know how I happened across it the other day, I found a list of life rules that the class had come up with. Now, if they were to write the Ten, the, the ten Commandments, they would turn out to be 32 in all. We are a very verbal bunch here, as you know. But I'm just going to select a few to read to you and just, just kind of check it out, see how that sounds to you. Show up. Be kind. Forgive. Keep your promises. Clean up your mess. Tell the truth. Make amends when you've hurt someone. Grant to others the same rights to life, liberty, and equality that you claim for yourself. Let the tears stream down. Throw back your head and let your song be heard. I love that. Cherish all forms of life, including your own. Seek always the greatest good, recognizing that it may not be your own. Honor your mother, your father, and your children. Show gratitude and do no harm. Now, I remember when we talked about that and kind of asked the people in the class where their principles came from. And they said that somehow, for some reason, it just felt right to them. Not always good, but right. And so I would like to close a little early because I'd like you to do a little exercise right now. Um, I would like you to reflect for just a moment on what would be in your own list. What is your own ethical map of the world? Think about where your rule for life or your rules for life come from. And if you are willing, Todd um, should have passed out, the, the ushers passed, passed out cards. Does everybody have a card? Okay, if you don't, raise your hand. Todd will bring it around. A couple up here. Maybe somebody can help Todd. Yeah. Um, and what I'd like you to do is just write down at least one rule that you live by. 
one rule that you try to practice or one principle that you would like to pass down to our children in the Sunday school. And then a little bit later, during the collection, I'd like to ask you to place your card in the basket so that we can then pull all these rules to live by together and at a future platform, see them all, look at them, just honor them. So I thank you all for listening this morning. Um, I made it brief so that we would all have a time to have a break between now and going over to the Civic Center. And in a moment, we will be singing with the chorus. Is that correct? And so you can continue writing after the musical piece and uh, have fun with this. It would be very interesting to see what you have to say. <laughs>